This is your offstage announcer telling you and only you that a single fly gives birth to over a million offspring. A married fly is another story. Now, back to the records. This is Beatles 60. Sixty years ago today. Sixty years ago today. Thanks for joining us, listeners. This is Beatles sixty coming to you sixty years after the first half of February. 1962. Let's think back just a few episodes. Much of the second half of 1961, our boys were about to quit, stop, discontinue their beetling activities because they were just playing the same places in Liverpool and the world, round and round, same routine over and over, starting to worry that they'd never break out nationwide or sign a decent contract with a record company. Fast forward just a few months and their horizons look much better. They got a manager who knew at least how to put together a decent press kit and was already making calls to industry people and media people on their behalf. They got their first gig in Manchester, and they and Brian all agreed that it was time to upgrade their image and get fitted for suits. I'm Larry. Andy's here. No. We're both Americans, but I'm an expat. You know the story. In this episode, we're focusing on Manchester, and we're joined by two guests in or around Manchester. This is a special Yanks and Manx episode. I'm buzzing. It's going to be great. And uh, many of our listeners probably know Steve Bradley, Beatles historian, currently working toward a Master of Arts degree from the University of Liverpool. He's from Cheshire, right next to Manchester. Uh, we're also joined by Steve's longtime friend and Manchester radio presenter, Phil Salter. Together, they podcast under the name Arrive Without Traveling, and we'll provide a link in the show notes. You all right, guys? Yeah, good, thank you. Hi, guys. Hi, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. Hi. I'm so happy you guys are with us today because um, it's going to be a new view for us. It's uh, early February 1962. Let's start, as usual, with the part of our podcast called Where We Going, Fellas, where we take stock of where they seem to be along their path to the toppermost of the toppermost, not so much using our hindsight, but trying to gauge how the Beatles themselves probably thought they were doing during this point, uh, how they were doing at this point. I said, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I said, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the top of most and the top of most. Right, cheer up. Top of most, top of most, Johnny. When the Beatles were depressed, thinking the group was going nowhere, and this is a shitty deal, and we're in a shitty dressing room. I said, where are we going, fellas? And they go, It seems to me like uh, may have been somewhat of a roller coaster. I mean, six months ago, they wondered if they had a future at all. One month ago, they thought that Decca would be certainly signing them, you know. And now they're starting to get rejections from labels, both Decca and EMI. Manchester's about thirty-five miles from Liverpool, right? Yeah. They first played their gig, a gig in in Manchester as the Beatles at the Oasis Club on the second night of February in 1962. They were sandwiched in between two jazz bands. Presumably a large proportion of the audience would have been jazzers. We don't really know uh, many details. I wonder, though, how the Beatles went over in their leather suits. Do you have an idea of what the mood there was like in early February 62? This gig at the Oasis was the Beatles' first proper professionally organized gig outside Liverpool and Hamburg. The venue at the time was primarily a, a jazz venue, like the Cavern. It was just evolving to become more rock and roll and less jazz. So, for example, there wasn't a dance floor there. It was tables and chairs. 
So the audience would all have been sitting on, cha on chairs at tables with a drink to watch the band play on the stage. So there was no dancing. There wasn't the right sort of atmosphere for rock and roll. Mm. Also, like the cavern, it wasn't licensed. There was no alcohol being sold there. So it was just tea and coffee and coke and maybe a sandwich. So mm. people would go, go there for a, a soft drink and a snack. If they wanted a drink, they had to go to the pub next door. Uh, again, similar, similar environment to the cavern. Manchester is what was then and is now the, the regional hub for the north of England, particularly the northwest, for the media. It's where the national newspapers were printed for the north of England. The uh, northern TV and northern radio was all based in Manchester. So uh, it was a big city in terms of media exposure, which uh, the Beatles needed to get to um, build their reputation beyond Liverpool. said that the audience was stupefied uh, by the leather. Is that really accurate? Yeah, I think so, because as we know, no other group looked quite like the Beatles uh, in Liverpool mm. or Manchester at that time. They, they did look unique. They looked rough and ready. Um, and I think they would have taken the audience by surprise. If you imagine going to a venue where you're going to sit at a table and probably watch a jazz band with a, a bit of rock and roll, then these four leather-clad rockers come on stage playing loud <laughs> rock and roll music, it's really going to wake you up. Yeah. With their hair combed forward. <laughs> yeah. So, currently on our timeline, they're making their way into Manchester with their first gig as the Beatles in Manchester, and they schedule an audition with the BBC in Manchester. The gig was probably unremarkable. The audition was just an audition. But let's also jump farther into the past and talk about the Quarrymen on Star Search. After that brief coverage of their Manchester past and present, let's free ourselves from our timeline bounds and spend most of the show talking about the Beatles in Manchester in general. And then finally, our guests' experiences growing up in the 60s in Manchester. Enterprises who were very involved with the Manchester scene because they became, uh, or the owners of that, I think, became the managers of 10CC. Hmm. It was a huge uh, influence. Kennedy Street Enterprises have been massive within Manchester. That's right, Phil. In booking concerts, and they're still they're still active today. Quite, it's also quite interesting that this this wasn't in the outskirts of Manchester. This is bang in the city centre of Manchester as well. And you know they've been dying for national exposure, so. Um, they don't know it yet, but this will have been a, a good step to go to Manchester. And that's, that's the important point, I think, for this, for this, for that gig. You know, that's why we're, that's really what, what prompted us to sort of organize this show around Manchester. That this was their first sort of step out, out of yeah. their usual places, their usual stomping grounds. It 
it was a bit similar to Liverpool. It's um, it's a bigger city, but um, it, it had a, a music scene, a live music scene, and there'd been a big skiffle craze in Manchester the same way they had in Liverpool in the late 50s, and that had evolved into rock and roll. So it was uh, similar to Liverpool, although Liverpool had a, a more thriving music scene for its size of population than Manchester. But generally, uh, it was similar. Quite a lot of live music venues, like the Oasis and the Three Coins and the, a variety of live music venues. Then there was the BBC audition in early February, right? Yes, it was just a few days after the first gig at the Oasis. You know, there's a, a nitpicky detail, right? Because Lewison says that was February 8th, and the Beatles Bible says that it was February 12th. <laughs> do we know? And, uh, and more uh, importantly, how, do, how, you know, how did it go? Which do we trust? Yeah. Well, I, I've got it as the 8th in my notes for the, uh, yeah. the audition with, uh, with Peter Pilgrim yeah. at the Playhouse Theatre in Manchester. Well, which according to the People's Life book, Steve, uh, which is Mark Lewison's, it says on February the 12th, so... Okay. Yeah, that's Lewison saying, yeah. That, that's outdated research, though, Phil. That's Lewison's first book, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we jump into the future, let's go back and mention the Quarrymen appearances on Star Search. I don't know anything about that, so... Uh. Well, it was... Star Search was kind of a talent competition, right? I mean, groups would compete for a chance to appear on TV... Um, and John, Paul, and George, uh, headed to Manchester for the opportunity in November, but there seems to be various versions of what happened. Was it 1958 or 1959? Mark Lewison says 58. The Beatles Bible says 59. There are some details that don't fit with that year, though, including George Harrison had a memory of riding the train to Manchester with Billy Fury of course, known by his real name of Ronnie Witcherly at that point. But Fury already had singles on the UK charts in 1959, so why would he be doing a talent show that year? Mm. Um, yeah. And and then there's also the Johnny and the Moondogs. They would use that name instead of the Quarrymen, right? And the story about the stolen guitar. Um, yeah. <laughs> what can you guys think, clear up about all this? Yeah, they, they went to Manchester a few times for auditions. They went to the Quarrymen in late 1957, where this was the time when they, they travelled into Manchester for an audition at ABC TV, without realising that it was in Didsbury, which is a suburb of Manchester, about five miles out from the city centre. So they were short of bus fares to get there. And you, I don't know if you remember the story, but Paul was short of a bus fare. He wasn't going to have enough money to get home. And he was complaining <laughs> about this on the bus out to Didsbury, and a strange put a couple of coins in his hand to pay for his bus fares. Wow. <laughs> so they got to the audition at uh, ABC, which was at um, a TV studio. It was actually an old theatre. And they were sent over the road to a hotel opposite, which is where the auditions were actually going to take place. Uh, this is late 1957, probably about October 57. Uh, the hotel's still there. It's, it's a pub called the Parswood Hotel. So they had the audition, but they didn't pass it, so they didn't get to be on ABC TV as the quarrymen, but how different things would have been if they'd been successful. They went back... Um, the following year, 1958, for another audition, this was the Johnny and the Moondogs, where it was just John, Paul yeah. and George. This was at a venue called the Hippodrome, which no longer exists, but it was in um, Ardwick in Manchester. This was the time when John didn't have a guitar and he stole one. <laughs> it's mentioned in the anthology. So they, they went in with two guitars and came out with three. And then they went back for a third audition in Manchester. But of course, this time, John couldn't take the guitar with him in case the <laughs> original owner spotted it and said, hey, that's my guitar. I recall reading this somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So he, he stood between the two of them, each of them left-handed and right-handed, so they must have looked like he must have looked like a, a guitar angel with John yeah. in the middle. Right. And just a bit, of, a bit of context around this: one of these auditions was won by a duo of Graham Nash and Alan Clark, mm. later of the Hollies. Hollies, yes. And also attending auditions around this time were people like Freddie Garrity, Freddie and the Dreamers, and uh, the Gibb Brothers, who later became the Bee Gees. They were playing yeah. Skiffle in Manchester around this time too. Huh. Freddie and the Dreamers, yeah. An ex of mine, her mother, um, Freddie and the Dreamers played at her, her college at, uh, at Cambridge. Hmm. And also the Rolling Stones <laughs> played at her college. I don't know if it was, if it was Aux 
clear to Cambridge is one of them, you know. Now, if George is riding next to Billy Fury, it must have been really irritating because Fury's always shaking his legs, you know, keeping George awake. Like, Billy, would you stop shaking your legs? <laughs> oh, these are the jokes. Yeah. Boom, boom. Everyone a Maserati. <laughs> Arrive Without Travelling, the podcast for Beatles fans. Okay, now we're going to stay in Manchester, but break free of the 60-year-old timeline and look at the city and what it had in store for the Beatles in 1962, 1963, and beyond. I think those two years are pretty key, though. Um, if you happen to travel back in time 60 years and meet the Beatles in your time machine, folks, please don't tell them all about this because it'll become like a conundrum or something, a time warp. Um we don't have much time for detail yet, but we'll, of course, be returning to Manchester in future episodes. All the sort of main media organisations had premises in Manchester. The BBC had a big presence in Manchester. ABC did, um, and all the newspapers as well. So Manchester was the, the media capital of the north of England, and I, I would say still is. For now, as an overview, uh, what were their appearances in Manchester, including live venues, radio, television? We've covered a few with the with the Moondogs and the, the Quarrymen and the, and the first Beatles appearance at Oasis. But let's just say within 62 and 63, what were the notable appearances? Well, the, the first TV appearance obviously was, was uh, vital, but very important. The first time they actually appeared properly on television. You may remember that Granada TV, which was based in Manchester, had filmed them in the cavern in August 62, mm. playing some of the guy, but the footage wasn't used because the sound quality wasn't too good, uh, so it ended up not being used until the Beatles became uh, more well known. Mm. So their first proper TV debut was 17th of October 62 on a, a local Northwest program called People and Places. Uh, do you know what the first song the Beatles played on TV was? I don't. Uh, Ask me why. It was no, not it was, do, wasn't it? No, it was Some Other Guy. Oh, okay. They played Some Other Guy and then Love Me Do on People and Places, a regional uh, news programme. Hmm. Uh, sadly, it was played live, so there's no video of it, there's no recording of it, so we haven't seen it, but there are some, uh, some still photos from the occasion. Hmm. Then they, they built up their um, range of venues, the gigs, going into 1963. They played a club called the Three Coins. Do you know anything about that, Phil? Three Coins Club? Uh, whereabouts in, in Manchester was it, Steve? I think it was Fountain Street. It's okay, not there so anymore. I know, the, I know the area, but I don't know anything about it. I was, yeah. only, six, I was only five, six, eight years old at the time, so I wasn't sure. visiting clubs. <laughs> okay. Then they, they played on uh, People and Places TV show again in January '63. This was at Granada in the city centre. Uh, they were doing radio sessions for BBC at the Playhouse Theatre. They played at the Oasis again. Um, and then May 63 was when they played at the Odeon Cinema in the city centre, which was when they first met Derek Taylor. Taylor lived on the Wirral, um, but he worked primarily for the Daily Express, and he was their sort of arts reviewer. So he was reviewing, reviewing theatre shows and films and live music and so on. So it was for a national paper that was printed in Manchester for the north of England. They, they sent him to uh, review the Beatles show at the Odeon uh, Cinema in Manchester. This was ah. um, May 63. That was when he met them and then started to form a friendship with them. And, of course, he gave them a really good review. That's what I was going to ask, too, was, like, when when they actually met him. And I guess that's where, that's where it was. Yeah. That, that's it. Odeon. And, of course, they, at, at this time, they met a lot of reporters, a lot of reviewers who were... Uh, review them either good or bad and report the stories. They saw it, but they, they liked Taylor. They warmed to him. He was from Liverpool. They got on with him. They liked him and uh, that, that formed a friendship which lasted a long time. His uh, counterpart in the Ruddles universe is played by Michael Palin is named Eric Manchester. And now we know why. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I like to think so. That's right. So Oasis, I have a few dates. There's 29th of September, 62, the 8th of December, 62, 22nd of February 63. So uh, over, it must, the, those later dates must not have been like the first. <laughs> yes, totally. Because by 63, they'd stopped playing jazz. It was purely a rock and roll venue. The Beatles had built up their reputation in Manchester. They'd been on the radio, they'd been on TV. Um, and by the last time they played the Oasis, February 63, the queue was all the way down the road and round the block and into the next street. And the yeah. venue was packed and it was, you know, a very successful uh, outside of Liverpool gig. As we'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
with each appearance in Manchester, they developed a following, obviously, then. And did Mancunian fans react pretty much the same as fans back home down the Mersey? Yes, they did. The um, the screaming was, was going on in in, uh, in Manchester. In fact, when they, when they played at the, the Playhouse Theatre for radio sessions, sometimes there would be a live audience there, and the audience there would be would be screaming. Now, some of them would be brought in from Liverpool with the Beatles, some were local from Manchester. But yeah, the, the behaviours and the reactions were pretty much the same. By the way, some of these um, early BBC Manchester uh, live um, broadcasts are available on YouTube, at least one or both, I don't know. But um, one of them has Pete as the drummer, I guess Ringo's drumming in another one, I don't know. But um, they sound great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, the first radio sessions they did were with Pete, and then obviously the majority were with Ringo from uh, summer of 62 onwards. So they did a whole bunch of them then, eh? Yeah, they did quite a few in um, in Manchester before they sort of moved everything down to, to London and did all the radio recordings down there. Right, and, and in London without the audience, right? Yeah. Yes, I think generally the radio sessions in London were just in the studio without an audience, I think. There might have been the odd exception, but generally they were mm. uh, just in the studio, yeah. Did you know that the River Mersey starts in Manchester? It runs through some of the districts of South Manchester, including Didsbury that we mentioned before, where they went to the uh, ABC audition. Mm. So I think, I think for that reason, it's fair to call music that came from Manchester, you can call it Mersey Beat, the same as if it was from Liverpool. Mm. Yeah. Because the Mersey River uh, originates and, and starts in the Manchester area. The, the other thing I wanted to mention about Manchester was I see it as a stepping stone between Liverpool and London. They'd already made it in Liverpool. They were very successful, very popular in Liverpool. Um, and on their journey to being successful in London, they had to sort of go via Manchester. Right. They went to Manchester, which, as we said, was the, the northern hub or the northwest hub for the media. Yes. And they had to sort of go and conquer Manchester first and appear on TV in Manchester and radio in Manchester and then go to London, the, the national capital where the media was so much bigger and the reach for the audience was so much bigger, and then do it all again, TV and radio in London. So yes. I see it as a stepping stone. They, they, they conquered Liverpool, then they conquered Manchester, then they were ready to go and do London. If you imagine the Beatles only made a record, a single, say, uh, at EMI, without having had the television and radio exposure already in Manchester, it might have been a different story. Yes, I'd, and, I'd to say. and it, it made it easier for Epstein to, to sell the Beatles to the media in London by saying they've been on the TV in Manchester, they've been on the radio in Manchester. You know, they, they had experience of being in a radio studio, a TV studio, dealing with people in the media. So that uh, helped prepare the Beatles and Brian for when they made the move to London. It's always fascinated me that in June, I think, of 62, Brian had a bunch of fans from the Cavern actually come to Manchester. How big of a deal was that? Would the audience have actually been just as excited, or was it a really good idea to have that Cavern crowd there? Well, it was a great idea because the, um, the love the audience had for the Beatles would come across on the radio broadcast. The, mm. the cheering and the clapping and the screaming and the singing mm. along would come along on the radio broadcast which made the group sound a more, far more exciting proposition to people listening on the radio. Mm. So that was a, a great idea. I think what you need to know as well, uh, guys, which uh, you won't be aware of, but in America, whereas you had pop music stations all day long, we mm. had the BBC, which was primarily light entertainment. And mm. I think apart from uh, the top 20 being played on a Sunday, we had a program called Saturday Club on a Saturday morning, which was two hours long from memory. I was six years old. I'm not exactly sure. I think it was a couple of hours long. And that's, that was really one of the only opportunities you got to hear the latest pop releases. Mm. And it was, and it was like that until 1967, till Radio One started. Mm. Apart from Radio Luxembourg, which you could pick up at nighttime in really poor quality. Mm -hmm. The pyro radio stations that started in the mid sixties, there was no pop music available on the radio apart from those few programs. So how we got to hear these songs was either that or by the records. I often wondered about this, you know, I, I, I can understand how pirate radio must have made all the difference in the UK because mm -hmm. my only time in London was in 1986 and I remember we get to Earl's Court and I put on the television and there were only, I don't know, a couple of stations and like the only thing on was this, this, um, woman saying like, was it? Jesus the Great Jehovah, or was it the Great Redeemer? Well, Mrs. Norgatuck from, you know, East Winston thinks it's the Redeemer. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck? What is this? You know, <laughs> is this what entertainment is like in, in Britain? Oh my God. 
in the eighties, we only had four TV channels in the UK. Wow, just four. I mean, we have you know, hundreds now. We we sort of caught up perhaps with America now, but we only had four in the eighties, didn't we, Phil? We did. We had video, we had video recorders, so we could record channels, but there were only a choice of four anyway. You're right. <laughs> Yeah. We, only got color t- we only got color TV in 1970. So Luxembourg and Caroline, the influence stated, is that right? Or? 100%, yeah. As, yeah. As, a kid, as a kid growing up, obviously Steve's a little younger than I am, so he won't remember this at all, but I remember being in the car with my dad and trying to get him to put Radio Caroline on because that was available nationally. Uh, other pirate stations like Radio London were only available in and around the London area. So Caroline was fantastic when it started, which I reckon was about 1965. Um, and between 65 and 67, uh, it, it's, it's actually is what inspired the BBC to create Radio One and become a pop music channel. Uh, and they, they stole a lot of the DJs from Radio Caroline and Radio London. So people like Tony Blackburn, mm. uh, Kenny Everett and uh, various others became household names overnight when they'd been pirates six months previously. Mm. So that was our opportunity to listen to pop music. Uh, there was also um, there was also ju- a program called Jukebox Jury on the BBC every Saturday mm-hmm. night in which uh, they'd play the latest releases and a jury of four would decide whether it was going to be a hit or a miss. And of course, Beatles fans will know that the Beatles appeared as the complete jury on one Saturday. Uh, there, there is pictures of that. There, there yeah. is audio. There's audio available, but the actual show's been wiped by the wonderful BBC. <laughs> uh, there was also a program on a Saturday evening called "Thank You, Our Lucky Stars," which again I remember the Beatles being on. And the good thing about "Thank You, Lucky Stars" uh, from memory, they didn't only sing the singles. I think at one point they sang things like. Uh, certainly, they sang eight days a week. I can remember them singing that, or maybe I've seen it since I don't know but as as a kid growing up five or six years old who was totally hooked on music these were the few and far between opportunities to see pop music on British radio and TV I'm definitely going to link to uh, Generation X doing what was the song I was in love with the Beatles what was that song now I'm in love with Kathy McGowan I don't remember. Well, Kathy McGowan married uh, Mickey Dolenz, didn't she? No, she didn't. From the month, didn't she? No, she didn't. That was Samantha Just. Oh, oh, Samantha, sorry, you're right. It was Samantha Just. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. In the song, he talks about Thank You, Lucky Stars and yeah, whatever that other one. Programs. These were great Saturday night viewing. It was that, then Batman. So they were great Saturday nights. You had to get home for that. And if you missed it, you missed it. There was no video recording. So what about the first color broadcast yeah. or... This was the, the other ABC venue that uh, one of you mentioned, which was the, the ABC Theatre in Ardwick in Manchester, uh, where the Beatles played in November 1963. And it's the first time they were filmed professionally in colour with sound anywhere in the world. So that was quite a, a landmark moment. Also, the interesting thing, I think, about the venue is that the Hippodrome used to be just across the road from it, where they auditioned with the Quarrymen. Hmm. And I like to think of the, <laughs> the nationally famous, very successful number one Beatles going to one venue and seeing the other venue just over the road where they'd been to in years gone by as struggling, you know, amateur boys. Interesting. Just, and you know, and once we get to the end of 63, we're getting almost to the the time in my life when I can actually remember, where I still have synapses, you know, and can remember when, <laughs> they, when they arrived a few months later in the U.S. I remember my memory goes back like exactly a few weeks before Ed Sullivan, essentially. I don't remember... <laughs> John F. Kennedy at all, <laughs> right? But um, but that but the Beatles that you see in that in that um, Path News film in color yes. um, is essentially the same Beatles that we first saw in the USA a few months later. Yes, of course. But the, the novelty of it, of course, is that it was filmed in color because TV was still black and white then, wasn't it? Yeah, and, uh, it was a newsreel film to be shown in cinemas. Um, uh, and that was that's the first color film of the Beatles, so it's very sort of it captures some very exciting footage. And I think, as Phil mentioned, the venue is still there. It's still one of the main the- theater venues in Manchester for live music, so it's uh, it's, it's story is continuing. And that's I have seen cool. Paul McCartney there live. So uh, oh, <laughs> well, I saw Paul McCartney at what was then the Apollo, which we're talking about the ABC Hardwick. But when I saw him in 1979 with Wings, uh, it's a turn into the Apollo. Uh, and after the show, I decided, or a few of us decided, we'd go back to a local hotel, which was called the Piccadilly Hotel, because they had a restaurant there. So it was something to do afterwards. We went back there, not knowing that Paul McCartney was actually staying there. 
And um, while we were eating, we heard like a commotion in the reception area. So dashed outside, and <laughs> the whole the whole of Wings were standing there, being surrounded <laughs> by people. So I managed to get a, an autograph from Paul. And then after I'd got that, I realised you know that might be the only time I got to see him. So I remember touching his leather jacket, touching his back, uh, <laughs> and then sort of moving away. But then found myself chatting to Linda for a few minutes because nobody was really talking to her. They were all interested in Paul. Right. So she, and she was lovely. She, uh, that's my memory of, of Linda. She was absolutely fabulous and really nice. And it was a, a great end to a, a brilliant evening. She was very accommodating, very chatty, just very normal. That's what I remember about it. Just very ordinary, just chatting about whatever. I can't remember what, long time ago. But, you know, I don't think we were talking sort of Beatles, just, you know, what was going on. But just that memory of being there is a great memory to have. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never touched any of the, the big greats except for Keith Richards. I touched his hand once <laughs> <laughs> and didn't wash for months, you know. <laughs> I like to tell people I met four of the Beatles, but never John Lennon, and see the puzzled look on their faces when they're right. really huge Beatles fans. And one of them is Chaz Newby or what? <laughs> no, one of, was, one of them was Pete Best. Of course. So I met George, Ringo and Paul and Pete Best. Wow. There's a George story, which you'll have to listen to on one of our podcasts. I'm not giving it away on yours. <laughs> All right. All right. Good. <laughs> Steve knows it well, don't you, Steve? I do. Great story, Phil. Now, listeners outside of the UK may or may not know how the ITV network works. We've talked about Granada Television. I guess there have been mergers in recent years, and, and there are many regional franchisees in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. We don't need to go into too many details here, but I wanted to confirm that when when um, Granada in Manchester would, would make a program or Thames in London, these would often be carried nationwide, wouldn't they, on all the ITV network? That's right. The, um, the UK was divided up into different regions, and each region had its own franchise for independent television. Each franchisee would make their own programs, which they would show, and then try and sell them to the other ones. So... In Granada, most of the programs you would watch were made by Granada, but you'd also watch programs made by the other franchisees around the UK. Mm. And, and because historically Liverpool and Manchester were both in the county of Lancashire, they were both in the same region for television. So they were both in the Granada region. Yeah. But, but the studios and the operations for Granada were all based in the city of Manchester. I got it. So regionally, they just thought of as the Northwest, but uh, exactly. Manchester is the real place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I asked that because um, that would have given them nationwide exposure, yes? Well, it depends. I mean, programs like The People and Places, which were the first two appearances they made on Granada, they were only shown in the Northwest mm. because that was, that was a regional news and local, you know, current affairs program. So you would have seen that if you lived in Liverpool or Manchester or the Northwest, but you wouldn't have seen it in London. Oh, interesting. I have a note here. I don't know how to really launch into this. I wrote down Johnny Hamp. <laughs> yeah. Put future greats on Granada early in their careers. The Beatles, Scylla Black, Woody Allen. <laughs> and also what? featured uh, seasoned African-American musicians uh, later in their careers, like Sister Rosetta Tharp among them. Johnny Hamp was a huge influence in Manchester. I actually was at school with his son, and I'm still in touch with, with his son, Chris. Uh, hmm. Johnny celebrated his 90th birthday uh, in December. Hmm. Uh, so he's, he's still around. He was a huge influence in Manchester. Not really realised at the time, but in retrospect, um, he, he was very forward-thinking and he was one of the first to sign up the Beatles to perform on TV for Granada. Uh, he was just innovative, I think. You know, he, he created a, a TV show in the 70s bringing a lot of comedians onto the TV that had never been seen on TV before. And it was a huge, huge hit. And he was just in the right place at the right time and just a huge influence. And I think very important in the Beatles story as far as TV goes. Steve, you got anything to add about Johnny? Yeah, you'll remember the TV show, The Music of Lennon and McCartney, that they made in November 65 at Granada. Do you remember that at all? I do, of course I remember. Yeah, it's, where, it's, it's, still, it's still been, you, you still see that, can't you? Yeah, where all different artists were doing their versions of Beatles songs. Oh, yeah. Larry and Andy, are you familiar with it? Um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I've okay. seen it, but, but not, it's, it hasn't I been a lot of it. People yeah. like Silver Black were on it, Peter Sellers was on it, I think. Uh, yeah. Certainly the Beatles were on it as well. 
my point though is that the Beatles wouldn't normally, or Lennon McCartney didn't normally get involved in variety shows like that by 1965. But the reason they did was because they wanted to do a favour for Johnny Ham. He'd done a lot to get them on TV in 62, 63, uh, and been a big supporter of them at Granada in Manchester. So they agreed to do this sort of variety show uh, and appear on it, introducing the acts, singing their songs. And that was a favour for Johnny Ham. So obviously they thought highly of him. And who is it uh, from, who is it on the BBC? Uh, what was his name? Oh, Kenny Everett? Kenny Everett, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ken- Kenny Everett started life as a pirate radio DJ, but took radio to a completely different level in that he, he did lots of pre-recording, he, he did lots of his own jingles, he sang his own jingles. Kenny Everett was a radio pioneer and an absolute genius, and if you've never heard his radio work, look it up, because it's absolutely fantastic. I think most Americans don't know Kenny Everett. I only learned about him a few years ago, see, and I, I always forget his name. He was, I think, Radio London. I think that's where, or Radio Caroline, one of the, I'm not quite sure, but Kenny Everett was a Liverpudley, and that was his first thing. His real name was Maurice Cole. He actually became very friendly with the Beatles, I think because he was Liverpudley, and I think he was invited to go on tour to the States with them, and that's how he became very friendly with them. He, he used to have this little feature on his programme, which was absolutely fantastic. If, if you can recall, the Beatles stereo albums had the vocals in one channel, and Kenny Everett used to do a little segment on his show called Sing Along with the Beatles, where he would just play the, the uh, instrumental bits, so you could sing along at home with it. And he would sometimes sing along himself and maybe change the words as well. There's a brilliant version of him doing Eleanor Rigby somewhere. <laughs> it's worth digging out any of Kenny Everett's radio stuff. It's absolutely fantastic. And then he became a, a big TV star in the in the 80s and 90s doing his own TV show. But radio was his primary uh, entrance into the world of showbiz. Kenny Everett once did a show on our local radio station in Manchester, in around about 1979, I think. And I won a competition on that show, and I had <laughs> Kenny Everett repeating my name throughout the whole show as one of what? the winners. What? So, uh, that's, that's quite cool. Do you have a recording of it? Can, can we? I, cer- I certainly do. Yeah, I will, I will send it to you guys after this, because <laughs> it's great fun. And we got a winner, Philip Salter of 19 Ringley Road, Whitefield. Well done, Phil. A lumpy parcel on its way to you this very day, if we can find a postman handy. And here's the answer. I read the news today, oh boy. Well done, all those who got it right and didn't get through. Tough beans. Try again later. Six minutes after twelve, and I'll back to field. Right, I'll just just top you up just a little bit, Ken. Give me a blessing. Well done, Phil. A lumpy parcel on its way to you. This very day, if you can find a postman hand. It's been such fun. If you fancy covering your bod in a Piccadilly T-shirt, well, stand by. Oh, wasn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> and and Kenny, of course, produced some of the Beatles' Christmas records for the fan club in the UK. Oh, that's right. That's right. I learned that from your podcast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing about that radio show that I won a prize was, I still haven't received the prize. <laughs> what? You've got a good story about it, Phil. A good story, Steve, yeah, but no prize. Yeah. Do you know what the prize was supposed to be? Kenny Everett said it was going to be a big lumpy parcel. Bump a bundle of stuff. I'm still waiting. <laughs> big lumpy parcel. <laughs> this is your offstage announcer telling you, and only you, that the abominable snowman isn't really abominable once you get to know him. Now, back to the records. Okay, right. It's time to cram your digits in the dial. It's call of following number 061 Win yourself a lumpy parcel with an LP in it, which uh, Piccadilly are going to pay for, I hope. We are indeed. You're not expecting me to come up with it, are you? Well, indeed we were. Indeed we, were. we will pay, yes, okay. Plus a t-shirt and Captain Kremen badges with naughty sayings on them. Right, here we go. Now, let me explain this one. It takes a bit of uh, rehearsal and explanation. What we're going to do is play a whole stack of Beatle records. One, two, three, five in all. You write down the titles, then the first letter of each title spells a well-known television personality. Like if I played Hello Goodbye, that would be a H. Get it? Okay, here they come! Hey, 
Okay, that was it. If you've got all those down, look at the first letter of each title and it spells somebody awfully famous who's on every week, okay? We'll give you a little while to sort that out. Hello, Carol. God, you're clever. Carol Moody of 34 Dorrington Road, Sale in Cheshire. Very hot stuff. She guessed that all this bunch... Dr. Robert. Roll over Beethoven. Wait. Hello, goodbye, and obla-dee-obla-da. All bung together, spells Doctor Who. Congratulations, Carol. Lots of lumpy things on their way to you, so stand by your letterbox. And you guess, of course, it was D-R-W-H-O, Doctor Who. And there's a new album come out uh, with the theme on it. You know, the one that goes like this. It's on a Radiophonics album, which is freely available right now, and it also contains this great sound effect from from uh, an old goon show. Do you remember Rudnock's stomach? <laughs> great stuff. Radiophonics, uh, 21 years old this week, so that, that's what they're releasing for that. There was another benefit for the Beatles and Brian going to Manchester was that uh, the city was uh, a little more tolerant of the, the gay community than in Liverpool. Mm. Uh, and Brian being a gay man, which of course was illegal at the time and had to be um, managed discreetly, there were pubs he could go to in Manchester to meet other gay men. Um, mm. So the, the gay scene was more sort of uh, active in Manchester then. Uh, and of course, Brian liked that. And, and Manchester today has a, a thriving sort of gay scene in the gay community, uh, which, which sort of stemmed from that um, more accepting attitude around it uh, as early as the you know the 1960s and, and before then. Mm. Uh, the, the Pete's drum kit story was that he he bought um, a drum kit every time the Beatles went to Manchester. They'd go to a music instrument shop called Barrett's. Do you remember it, Phil? I think it was on Oxford Road. Um, vaguely, yes, in, yeah. In the 60s, it was. Yeah. So the, the Beatles would always go and look at the instruments in Barrett's shop, and I know Pete bought a drum kit from there. Um, and then one time the Beatles were playing a gig in Manchester, uh, and Mal by now was was working for them, and he turned up with all the equipment except the microphones. <laughs> For a gig, absolutely terrified because he knew when the Beatles and Neil arrived, Neil Aspinall was going to shout at him and John Lennon was going to shout at him because they had no microphones. So Mal, in a panic, rang Barrett's music shop and said, explain what the predicament was. And they said, don't worry, we'll bring you some microphones down. So Barrett's shop saved the day, went to the venue and, uh, and delivered some microphones or loaned some microphones to Mal that he could use for the Beatles gig. <laughs> the same shop which loaned uh, a guitar to George. Do you know the story about when his, his Gretsch guitar had a fault and it went into the shop for repair and he borrowed a Maton Master Sound guitar? This hmm. was uh, May, May 63. So George borrowed the guitar for the gig in Manchester. But I think by the next day, his guitar had been um, repaired and fixed, the Gretsch. But he decided to hold on to the mat on a bit longer because he quite liked it. So he played it for a few gigs in the summer of 63, including including Margate, uh, a couple of gigs in Liverpool, the last ever gig at the Cavern, uh, and a trip to Guernsey. So he played it quite a few gigs over that summer. Then he got returned back to the shop, Barrett's in Manchester, and it was traded by a local guitarist called Roy Barber. He swapped his friend a Stratocaster for this mat on, and he was told that George Harrison had borrowed it. It then turned up at auction in New York in 2015 and sold for $485,000. Holy shit. And, and since then, it's sold again for $650,000. So that's what happened to the Maton guitar that George borrowed from, from Barrett's shop in Manchester. Wow. What is it called, a Maton? Maton, M-A-T-O-N, a Maton guitar. Maton. So if you look at some pictures of George playing live, summer of 63, you'll, you'll see him playing this different guitar, not the usual uh, Gretsch that he normally played around that time. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what about the music scene? We, we talked about the Hollies. Who else from uh, Manchester? Freddie and the Dreamers. Wayne, yeah, Freddie and the Dreamers, Wayne Fontana and the Mindbenders. Game of Love, remember that? No. <laughs> but I do, I do remember Hermits. Hermits. Did, did Hermits, Hermits come from Manchester? Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah, Peter Noon had been a, a Beatles fan. He went to see the Beatles play live in, in Manchester when they played in a marquee in a park in Manchester in uh, 1963. That was Abbotsfield Park in Ermston. And uh, Peter Noon was in the audience for that one. And unfortunately for me, I'm a little bit younger. And so I always think of Manchester as being the place where all of those bands came out of. <laughs> of course. I mean, you, you being a goth, Andy, you must, yes. you must have been into Joy Division. <laughs> Joy Division is, you know, legendary for me, yeah. One of the big names in Manchester that you've missed out really very important is Graham Goldman. Mm. He was a huge, a uh, huge uh, songwriting talent in in Manchester. Uh, my brother-in-law is actually his cousin, so I've met Graham a few <laughs> times. 
And I used to actually, I used to go to the, the football. I used to go to see Manchester United uh, early in the seventies and got to live with Graham's dad. So uh, he was later in Penn CC, of course. Oh, okay. I was thinking, like, who is this Graham person? <laughs> in the sixties, he was a songwriter, mostly writing songs for other people, wasn't he, Phil? Yeah, he wrote lots of hits for the Hollies. He wrote "Bus Stop." He wrote. Um, oh yeah. What else? Uh, no milk today for Herman's hermits. Uh, and various. His, his dad was a playwright and. Uh, a very nice guy, and his mum only passed away a few years ago, aged a hundred. So history of Manchester, but Graham Goodman is a is a major player in the, in the Manchester music scene. And he formed Ten CC with uh, Eric Stewart, who later worked with Paul McCartney. Still uh, so bus stop. That's like bus stop. Da, 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 that's the one. Under yeah. my umbrella. Okay. That's wow. The, that's the one. Yeah. Wow. All these all these people who like think about it, right? In our brains, we're all carrying around. <laughs> Millions of us are carrying around the same all same tunes and lyrics. You know, slightly misunderstood, most of us probably, but uh, still carrying them around. So even though I didn't know his name, I knew he affected me somehow. You know. Yeah. That I have a synapse made by him somewhere in my brain, you know. Interesting. So yeah, other, you know. another person, obviously, in Manchester was Woodard and Elkie Brooks, uh, and, and her brother Tony was the drummer in Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. So mm. another connection between Manchester and Liverpool there. Mm. Now you guys, I know, I, I know, Phil, you're just a few, three years older than me, and. Uh, Steve, I don't know your age, actually. Do you mind? Well, Is it rude? I'm, I'm 53. I was born in 68, so I'm a second-generation fan. Oh, you're really young. <laughs> okay, yeah. And Thank so you. you I'm, it's not often I'm called really young. Thank you. <laughs> you're the youngest <laughs> of our group here, I think. Andy, you were born in 64. <laughs> well, you you know my story, right? I was born on the day the Beatles played at Salt. Okay. And, and I remember it. And I, <laughs> yeah, That's right. I, I once told the story in a group of friends in Boston, like, oh, my earliest memory, I, I was just before the Beatles came and played Ed Sullivan. And I, my sister had this uh, French EP from the Odeon label a few weeks before. I remember I took it and played it on my little Bozo the Clown record player that made for little kitties. And I played Till There Was You over and over and over. <laughs> and then my friend Kathy said, oh, my God, I feel so old. She said, about the, about the Sullivan show, she said, I had a dinner party that night. <laughs> so there uh, let's see what else have we got what do we got yeah so what about uh, later in the 80s you guys don't talk about that I mean you had such a great scene there with the fall and the buzzcocks and, and joy division you guys were just busy doing other stuff then or no I, I was a follower of that sort of era I was I was working in Manchester City Centre sort of late 80s early 90s and there was, there was gigs on every week of uh, you know great bands or bands that certainly were well known in Britain yeah. Um, do you know the Stone Roses? Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Happy Mondays. Oh, yeah. Jane, I mean, hell yeah. You might want to mention Oasis. You order. Who, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phil? Oasis. Oasis. That was a bit later. Yeah, that was 94 onwards, wasn't it? Oh, that was, that On was record, 90s, anyway. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Manchester became, became huge in the 80s. Of course, the Smiths, yeah. Yeah. I, I was probably a little bit old to appreciate that music, and yeah. I always felt it, it, it didn't quite connect with me. Um, especially bands like The Fall and Joy Division. I like New Order, uh, mm. and I, enjoy, mm. I enjoyed some of the Smiths, although I could never quite understand why people thought they were the new Beatles, because I thought mm. most, most of their stuff sounded the same as each other. So I'd probably be lynched for that comment, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm miserable now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was good so, for me, like, you know, in. In, in the Midwest, in the U.S., uh, um, you know, most of those bands, with the exception of Oasis, you know, who was obviously huge, um, we had to search those bands out. I mean, Joy Division, that was like going out and finding, you know, information about a great band that no one else knew about in the States, you know. The yeah. first time that Joy Division played in Boston, um, Ian had just hanged himself like the week before mm -hmm. or something. So they arrived and nobody understood. I didn't go to that gig, but others who went to the underground saw a new order. It wasn't yeah. like explained or anything. Something I find strange, and I've said it to Steve before now, is that, you know, there's the, the USA and there's the UK. And I would say 95% of all the rock bands and the groups and the pop stars have come from those two countries over the years. Yeah. You know, mm. you know, where else? Maybe a few, a couple from Australia. There's ABBA from Sweden. There's no major Spanish rock bands, French rock bands, Italian rock bands. It's mm. absolutely unbelievable that it's just these these two countries that have produced all this amazing music. 
It's true, isn't it? There's well, from Germany, there's Rammstein and <laughs> and Einstein and Neubauten. We're still not very, not very big. I sing their songs all the time. So we'll have to have a show: Beatles versus Einstein and Neubauten. It'll be a very short show, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to talk about how sort of, as, as, as the oldest of the group, it sounds like, how I sort of followed the Beatles as a six, seven, eight year old yeah. and, and heard, and heard it because I've always said to Steve that because he's a second generation Beatles fan, he didn't hear it as it happened. So he didn't hear it in order. He probably heard, Hey Jude, then all my loving, then she loves you, then, you know, in, yeah. in, in, ran- in random order. Whereas I yeah. heard it as it happened. And yeah. As you got, you guys probably did, but not maybe to the same um, extent. I did, but, and, he wouldn't have the first uh, first album I ever heard was Let It Be. Phil, I think you're only a couple of years older than me, and uh, both of us noticed the Beatles early on in America. Our first exposure was 1964. We've already discussed this, haven't we? My first living memories are this French EP that I already mentioned. And it was a few weeks before they landed at JFK Airport, are my actual first memories. So I'm basically, of all the people who remember seeing their first appearance on Ed Sullivan, I would be among the youngest Americans, just old enough to have enough brain power to remember it. I was only three years and three months old. I can remember the first Beatles record I received would have been She Loves You definitely that's the first Beatles record I got for myself although I'd, I'd heard and seen uh, from a family and a group of friends who lived across the road they had the With the Beatles album which you guys in America didn't have it was, certainly I can remember all my loving on that one and, and just being hooked by that and then seeing them on the TV so my first record I received would have been She Loves You uh, I the second one I received was um Beatles for sale in 1964 for Christmas and within two or three weeks it was my brother's birthday and I remember performing miming to George singing Everybody Wants to Be My Baby it was my <laughs> favourite track on the album at the time it isn't anymore um, so yeah and growing up I had a Beatle wig I had a guitar I had a Beatle Ringo drum uh, and uh, another story which I, I mentioned to you Renzi, the other day when we chatted was that our family had a lampshade, uh, a lamp manufacturing business, and we produced some Beatles lampshades in the mid-60s, in probably 64, looking at them. Uh, they produced late 63, early 64, and uh, we, we sold those to another company who then put them on lamps and, and distributed them around the UK. We sold them for about the equivalent of 20 cents and I've seen them on eBay now for around $300, so I wish I still had some. <laughs> so then growing up uh, from 65, I remember going to the cinema to see Help. I remember going to see uh, Hard Day's Night in 64. Mm. What else would I have done? I'd have, I'd have got the, I remember getting the Help album and uh, being quite noticing when I got it home, we had the stereo copy and noticing the difference between stereo and mono. Mm. And uh, that was my first uh, introduction to there may be some differences going on here, which I hadn't heard before. Mm. I got Revolver in 66, I got Pepper in 67, White Album in 68, because it was too expensive. EMI Studios. I had to buy my own records again growing up from from then onwards. And eventually in the mid-70s got all the Beatles albums for myself, although I had heard them. So... That was my experience growing up receiving the Beatles. I mean, it's obviously bigger than that and watching them on telly, but I saw it as it happened. And mm. so for me, when I heard Strawberry Fields, it was just, oh, this is good. You know, I didn't realize as, a, as an eight or nine year old how, how mind bogglingly brilliant it was. Mm. Uh, obviously now I do. And the first mm. time I played it, I remember it, I took it off. Uh, and then the next time I played it, I was on the other side of the room. And the fade-out bit came back again, and I'd taken it off too early the first time, so I didn't realise. It was it was odd to, to realise later that people hadn't heard the Beatles like we did. You know, we I, I think maybe we just accepted it for what it was. Certainly younger yes. people, may, maybe sort of the, the press and everybody realised what was going on. Exactly, so yeah. There's seven, eight, nine-year-olds. We just put Pepper on and thought, this is a great album. It's, yeah. It's <laughs> different, but we didn't think, hey, what the heck have they done? yeah. I just took it for granted as well, all the way through. Yeah. And like, it never occurred to me that the group that I latched onto 
when they had only one album when I was three, <laughs> would go on to be the group <laughs> all through the 60s. You know, it never occurred to me how, how interesting that is, that I didn't latch on to, I don't know, Herb Albert instead. Or, <laughs> you know. and, and we never knew we'd be talking about it 15, 60 years later. Yeah. Unbelievable. No, no one imagined that then, did they? No, and Phil, I was talking with Phil the other day. You were saying how how funny it is. Here we are. We're we're now much much older than they were, you know. And they were just kids, and we're like, and we're still talking I, about them. That's what I said to you, wasn't it? That that basically we're talking about the the work and achievements of twenty something kids, and in no other field of anything would we be discussing the work of a 20 year old it wouldn't be interesting maybe yeah. sport only yeah yeah but but i think if you think about it yeah maybe sport but if you think about all the great musicians think about bowie think about zeppelin think about the stones any band the who any band you care to mention by the time they got to their 30s their best work was done mm. yeah and, and maybe it's that maybe it's the the excitement of youth or or whatever but but these guys produce something that you went wow about i mean i haven't heard a record that's made me go wow for a long time andy you said that it's just that they've always been there and they're just sort yeah of well i mean because my experience was you know i was you know in one of those households where i was not allowed to listen to rock music um and and i started sneaking it when i was about 10 years old you know listening to the am radio um when my parents weren't around <laughs> yeah that was 74 and so at that point it for me when when i started figuring out that there was this band called the beatles they had broken up four years before that you know and and um and i was listening to elton john and and ringo Starr, you know and and paul you know uh and then finding out oh paul and ringo they were in a band before hey you know of course, I was only ten at the time, but yeah, and so in and so in the last almost fifty years, uh, they're just there. They're just like they're they're just they're part of my brain. Steve, what's your Beatles story? Your your, your origin story with the Beatles? Well, I was growing up in the seventies, and gradually, sort of from mm. being given records from people who bought them in the sixties, from Wings being around, from seeing Yellow Submarine on TV. Um, the first record I ever bought was Man of Kintyre. So I was, I was growing up through the 70s and gradually um, appreciating and learning more and more about the Beatles and their history. Uh, and then when John died, I was 12. And from, from yeah. that point, there was no looking back. I was reading books, reading magazine articles, collecting records and gradually you know, getting more and more into it. And I've been fascinated ever since. You guys were getting into it right when I was getting out of it, in a way. I kind of became, uh, I, I didn't like dislike the Beatles, but I sort of just started turning toward all the post-punk stuff and had my a band of my own, so I was so busy making my own music and doing my own gigs. And, go ahead. Yeah, the great thing about it is you, you can always go back to it, can't you? Yeah. So <laughs> I found that. You have times in life when you're busy with other things and you, you perhaps leave the Beatles alone a little bit, but it's always there for you. You can always go back to it. The music's there, the books, the films, and so on. So it's uh, it can be a hobby for life if you want. The only thing I missed was uh, all the books, basically. Most of the literature was from the period when I was sort of absent, you know? So I'm like Rip Van Winkle. Now I get on Facebook, and there's these all, all these old men with huge collections of, you know, a thousand Beatle books or whatever, taking photos of them for some reason, you know? I only have 80. Yeah. <laughs> there's certainly more activity than there are for other bands like Pink Floyd or The Stones or Elvis. There's mm. a lot more mm. people engaged more regularly with Beatles social media than there are for other bands, from what I've seen. And yeah. then with, with this latest film, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm like the only person in the world who hasn't seen it, you know? But, <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel like you're following a group that split up 50 years ago. It feels like you're following a contemporary group because there's always yeah. something going on. The, the Get Back documentary and Paul's lyrics books, there's always something new coming out and a new way of appreciating and understanding and enjoying the story. Mm -hmm. Or milking the fans, if you want to look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> milking and bilk, bilking the fans. If I recall, the TV series Life on Mars was yeah. set in Manchester in the early 70s. Was, did you guys notice that, and was it interesting for you? Yeah, it was, yes. A lot of it was filmed in Stockport, which is just um, not, not far from where I live, as well as Manchester. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I enjoyed that. It was a good series. 
And I listen to your podcast all the time. Didn't you guys meet around, uh, when, when did you meet? In the 87. 80s? Half past eight in the morning it was. <laughs> it was? It was a Thursday. Yeah, it was. We, we, yeah, we, 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 we met in the queue for the first ever Beatles CDs. We're not sure who was first in the queue, whether it was Steve or me. I, I think it was you, Phil. <laughs> and I think it was yeah. you, Steve, so <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> It's like twins, which was the firstborn twin, you know. The reason we became friendly was because we were there for the second release of the Beatles CDs as well. And that's when we sort of hit it off the second time. You know, the first time was just chatting. Second time was, this is becoming serious now. <laughs> yeah. We have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And we still meet up and chat about the Beatles now. It's all we talk about, isn't it, Steve? Yep. It's the important thing to talk about. I think you mentioned Mark Boland. What oh, right. His show, wasn't that on Granada also? In yeah, that was filmed at Granada in Manchester. The Bay City Rolls had a show filmed at Granada in Manchester as well. Shangalang. Shangalang. Uh, I'm, pret I'm pretending I never watched that. <laughs> <laughs> but you did, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I also watched the, the, the Mark Bowler thing and, and the very last show he had David Bowie on. Mm. Yeah, I've seen uh, that. I've seen that. What was it? What, what, what did they do? Uh, from memory, I, uh, they did a, a jam to finish off with, which was faded early because it, I think it was broadcast live, if I'm not wrong. Uh, didn't Mark fall off the stage? Uh, <laughs> there, there is a possibility of that happening, yeah. And I think Bowie did Heroes from again from mm -hmm. memory. Yeah. And then I think three weeks. In fact, I think the, I think that show was actually shown after Mark Bowman. It can't have been broadcast live. I think it was shown after Mark Bowman died because it was all around the same time. Uh, right. We have to uh, wrap this up. Um, big thanks to our guest. Please subscribe to Arrive Without Traveling podcast. Or we'll link to your um, blog, which links to the... Yeah, thank you. And so thank you, Phil and Steve. Uh, that will admit that. Andy. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Larry. Thank you, Andy. Thank you guys so much. Thank you both. I'm sure there's a lot of editing you need to do there. And thanks very much again, guys. Uh, we'll provide links to the things that we've discussed, as Larry already said, including um, Arrive Without Traveling podcast, the blog. And as usual, we've got the Barmy Beetle blog, the Beatles 60 blog, uh, YouTube clips, and so on. Uh, all those links will be there. Uh, you don't need to wait two weeks to continue following the 60 years ago timeline. Because there are things happening every day in the Beatles 60 community. My Twitter account link in the show notes. Um, also Facebook. And if you're a Facebook user, check out the daily posts at It Was 60 Years Ago Today. And at Barmy Old Codger. Um, and again, one more thanks to Steve and Phil, Arrive Without Traveling. Please stay healthy, everyone, and be safe. We're in 97 megahertz in stereo. And now, a message from our sponsor. This is Brian, or Epi, as the boys are fond of calling me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Beatles 60. The Beatles, at their heart, are storytellers. I'd like to invite you to go even deeper into their story by listening to another program called A Day in Their Life an audio drama of the Beatles' story. Both Andy and Lawrence agree, it's simply marvellous. For details, visit Beatledrama.com or see the show notes for this Beatles 60 episode for the link. Thank you. Thank you. Here's our number again, 0612286262, and it's contest time. Am I on? You're on. Yikeroo. Okay, collectors of peculiar tapes, here comes something from Australia. This is a commercial for, for Taubman's Paint. See if you recognize the tune. I've scraped, I've sanded back, and might I say, I've done some filling. The walls, 
I did them all. Taubman the hall and the ceiling. To think. I painted that. Another classic hits the dust. Thank you, Australia. That was terrific. Now, from the group that should have written Star Wars and didn't, the spirit of the age, my best friends, Hawkwind! chances of getting it right. We'll have the title, please, on the telephone. Will you give them the number? Because I don't know it. Fade yourself up first. It's um, 061-228-6262. 061-228-6262. Shall we have a tune? Yes, I, I knew it was something with numbers in. Right. Here's our number again, 061-228-6262. And it's contest time. Here's the first inch of an awfully well-known oldie. What is it? Hula who? And by who? Ring us now and win a prizey pool. Well done, Phil. A bundle of prizes on its way. We've got millions of contests today and monster prizes. What are we giving away today, Phil? We're giving away this, that, and maybe a bit of the other. <coughs> Hello, Kenny Everett here, and um, that other bloke. What's his name? Buster Gut. And the time on Cuddly Piccadilly. Oh, sorry. I, I popped the microphone. <laughs> we'll have another contest in just a minute. But first, it's special time. And now back to the studio. Thank you. And now it's badge time. Yes, I've brought lots of badges with me today. And they're all very silly ones. They're full colour. And they've got uh, sayings like, Shivers up your doobry. And the world's most fabulous man. And cosmic, what was it? Pearly teeth and cosmic knockers. And all that stuff. And you win one of those if you ring us. What was the number again? 061-228-6262. Close personal. Yes, I don't know him, actually. Well, Manchester. Paul Morgan, Carol Moody, Philip Salter, Frank Bling, Gillian Harding, and Tanya Mowler. Well done, you are our winners today, and if you've enjoyed the show half as much as we have, then we've enjoyed it twice as much as you. Right. 